Well, thank you all very much for being here. I'm delighted to introduce this conversation to you today with myself, Tim Adeline, and Warren Roberts, a wonderfully interesting man. He's the founder of Living Legacy, and I'll let him explain to you just exactly what that company's about. In short, I suppose it's reframing the possibilities for our post-death rituals in the Western world. And it comes from a place of, I think, a genuinely beautiful vision. And in part in this conversation, we perhaps trace the lineage of that vision, or if not trace it, provide a sort of uh, spiritual or, or mystical context, if you like, to that vision. In part, this conversation is about some sort of the relationship between mysticism and analysis. And that's an interest of mine. I'll continue to shoehorn that in wherever I can. <laughs> and I think we touch on free will and a little bit of, of alchemy. Warren describes himself in part as an alchemist. And well, that's very interesting. It's something that I don't have a, a fantastic understanding of, although I think I have some sort of window into some of the core feeling tone, cyclical, experiential processes one can engage with and indeed what one must engage with to to grow and develop and transform in life uh, which is of course quite an esoteric thing to say but it is an interest of mine and an interest of this project more broadly to um, situate the analytical way of thinking the breaking things up and coherently ordering them with a more feeling tone based mystical way of seeing and I think each side of our of this broadly almost perceptual nature you might you might call it although that's not particularly tight language is important to to our individual lives and I think as also our collective discourse moving forwards but if you would like to support what I'm doing with this project and to be a part of the journey moving forward then and you can find the link to Patreon below. And if not, then uh, your attention is already um, quite a gift. So thank you very much for that. And there's plenty of other ways to support what I'm doing here as well. All the usual ones, subscribe, like, share, and all the rest of it. It's quite important to figure out as soon as possible whether or not this project is of value to, um, well, to enough people so that it can sustain itself in the world certainly valuable to me and that's what I'll be pursuing for the foreseeable future so there's a lot more to come from myself and Voice Club over the coming weeks in particular I'm traveling to Prague to attend the Beyond Psychedelics conference where I'll look to speak to a number of the attendees there and I also have other conversations lined up otherwise with some really fantastic uh, international speakers and people who have fundamentally valuable things to say about living well and building the appropriate relationships of meaning into your world in a time where it remains as important as it always has been to do just that. So thank you for being here. You know where to find it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I have this time got an idea of at least where to begin from. And that is to ask you the question, who are you? And what occupies your time? Good question. Um, well, my name's Warren Roberts. Fantastic. Um, and I haven't thought about who I am for a, for a while. <laughs> so I have, I've got to define myself. Cool. Well, yeah. 
Um, I'm a, I'm a husband, mm. but that's a role. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. Mm. I'm a free thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a kite surfer. I'm an alchemist. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, throws in the alchemist yeah. at the end. Yeah. That's what I like. Yeah. I like the little yeah. bit of mystery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. All right. Well, one of the businesses you founded as an entrepreneur is called Living Legacy. Uh, which is a beautiful project, it really is. And it seems to me to offer a genuine solution to one aspect of death, or perhaps a sort of post-death anxiety Mm. that people experience. In the Western world, and at least according to my upbringing, the prospect of what to do with the body you leave behind is met by relatively few traditions that many people no longer feel compelled by. On the one hand, you have traditional burial. On the other, you have cremation, but followed by what? It's not so clear. Do you keep yourself in a box? Do you scatter yourself about? In one way, we might say living legacy sort of steps in here. Why is that? Um, well, the main reason is so in Australia, 70% of people are cremated. Mm-hmm. In Europe, it's about 70%, America 50 So the ma- majority of the world now gets cremated. And most people don't realize that cremated remains, they weigh three kilograms. They have the same pH as oven cleaner and bleach. Whoa. And they contain around a cup and a half of salt, which is 2,000 times too high for most trees. So people go to their favorite place in nature and they scatter ashes because they think it's good for nature. But their favorite place in nature is nice because it's an ecosystem. Right. And when you put salt in a high pH in an ecosystem, you're fucking it up. So even though they're doing it with good intentions, what's actually happening is, you know, they're wrecking the ecosystem. And we treat the ashes so that they become a living biology and they don't harm the soil and they, so that the person's ashes can become a part of the circle of life or you can create a tree. That tree creates seeds and seedlings and your legacy lives on. Mm. So, yeah, we've created a, a, a process that turns harmful ashes into nourishing ashes We've licensed it to government cemetery trusts. They've now created little memorial forests in cities. And yeah, how we die is changing changing the way cities grow. Mm. Mm. So one thing we did speak about last time, and I did tell you, and it's worth saying again because, well, it's, it is important. And that is that you're a man who has crystallized for me what I take to be some profound insights. Um, and I hope over the course of this conversation I might come to express to you and our listeners just what they are or at least one aspect of how to talk about them and of course they're related to lots of other things Um, but perhaps I'll set the scene with this question and that is was there a particular event in your life that set you on the path towards creating living legacy as you've just spoken about here Mm. two events the first event was 15 years old in detention and a headmaster comes around and we're supposed to be reading books so I grab a book from the shelf happened to be William Blake and started reading it um, and the moment I read the first line I was like I was changed forever he got you do you remember which one it was which it was Auguries of Innocence it's it was. the one I, sh- I shared with you beautiful and um, it's just it's that you know to see the world in a grain of sand heaven in a wild flower um, to that, 
you know, to know that other people had that experience and, and saw the, the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower and that, that mystical experience of being alive and yeah. it's it was it really changed my life and from, from that moment onwards um I was enchanted mm. by um a, a mystical being. Mm. And so I remember as well in our first conversation there was a particular I mean, William Blake to you is important for a few reasons, right? Mm. So we have here him coming into your life. And so is he part of the first reason as to what ultimately leads you to go towards living legacy? What's the second? Yeah. Well, look, with William Blake, it, it you know, that, that one line about seeing the world in a grain of sand in heaven in a wildflower, it really just inspired me and my connection to nature and my connection to beauty, whether it's, an inward one or an outward one, um, you know, it, that, that one line, you know, when I do go around parks and nature, you know, I'm in that state and I'm experiencing at that level and it's, um, it's, it's, it's just amazing. So that was the first part. He opened my eyes to, to seeing the world through that lens. Mm. And the second part was, um, I guess, when I lost a friend and, you know, I didn't know how to grieve. So... You know, and people said, how are you? And I said, I was fine because I hadn't cried. So, you know, my, my, my assumption that I was doing well was because I hadn't cried because I lost one of my best friends. How old were you? Probably 23, 25. Mm. And I wasn't fine. All I'd done was cut off from my feelings to, to cope. So um, I think it took seven years. And at that stage, I was a young man trying to prove myself in the world, had a business job and... Um, I started spending time in in the market in the forest again in the local park and gardens, and the more I did that, I started feeling again. And as the more I started feeling connected, the more I started feeling alive rather than dead. And when I did that, all the grief that I hadn't acknowledged it came up, and I let myself cry, and I let myself feel, and I let myself feel connected again. And you know, I'd been dead inside for seven years, and then I felt alive again, and I was like, wow, you know. If people's if, if if when people die they became a tree, instead of connecting to what people had lost, and being stayed in that connection to what they'd lost, they can connect to what that person's life created. They can connect to beauty. They can see them in the grain of sand. They can see them mm. in the heaven that's in the flower. Mm. And um, it's a path from grief grief to growth. It's a path path from loss to life. Mm. And that was my vision. I was like, "Wow! If, if I can, you know, if I can find a way to make this happen, then there's this. It's they're not just trees. It's a, it's a connection to divinity. Mm. Um, so I went to the the director of the botanic gardens and I thanked him for the beautiful creation that he made, where it helped me heal. I told him what I wanted to do. He said, "Look, it's impossible. You can't do it. Ashes kill trees. You need a special soil biologist to help you." So I found a soil biologist and we killed almost every tree we touched for two years until we found a way. Once we found a way, <laughs> I, it's true. It's true. Yeah. We yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, no, I believe It was yeah. terrible. It was terrible. We killed hundreds of trees and, and with no success for two years. Um, but then eventually we found a way. I painted it that way and now I'm licensing it and we're creating magic. That's beautiful, man. Yeah, that's beautiful. There was... 
something else you mentioned to me once, and I'm not sure if it was in relation to this story, but you used the expression, it was perhaps about this or perhaps about something else that happened in your life, but the, that the greatest tragedy of a heartbreak is when the heart breaks closed. Oh, yeah. And okay, so we have here being able to plant trees and sort of participate yeah. in that renewal of life. And there's something else about nature, which is that to the extent that I've experienced its wonder before, it's been in times when I have been more open to that. Mm. There's been in some element of me, we can call it the heart or what have you, mm. that has been more open to that, mm. right? And so, yeah, something that you say from grief to growth, something that takes a heart from being closed to open mm. is a powerful thing. But, um, you know, you did send me that poem from William Blake last night. And this line isn't from that poem, but it's an interesting one. And I'm not sure if it was from a poem or if it was just something he said that was recorded through the ages or what have you. But the line is, I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's. Um, now, William Blake, as we, as we know, is a hero of yours. And an interesting thing about this line is that it's true at one level and also false at another, like many things, depending on what perspective you view, you'd view it from, or at least so I'd argue. But certainly I feel the pull of this line. You know, on one interpretation, it's a precursor to Nietzsche's overman, right? Mm. The one who is capable of creating his own values. Now, certainly Blake was a radical of his day, at once expressing the kind of humanistic politics that ran counter to the political institutions of his time. And on the other hand, he also championed the imaginative creative spirit, which for him was a seeing capacity of man, right? And in a time when at an intellectual level, it was characterized by enlightenment thinking, rationality and intellect. So he's a radical in a number of ways. But what was it really? And we've sort of discussed this already. So something stuck out to you about William Blake. And we've discussed an experience that catalyzed your interest in him. You were in detention. But he really is a particular sort of writer. I mean, as, as most poets are, mm. you know, it, it, is, it is that metaphorical expression. It is that reaching for imaginative language. Now, he's, he's also making a number of statements. But uh, is, there a, is there a time... I'm trying to reach for some other peak sort of experience where where you can relate your interest in William Blake or it, not not the man but that way of thinking to to a place or an experience you found yourself in your life right mm. there's this sort of a at a metaphysical level an undercurrent to where we initially began this discussion was you might consider this di distinction between uh, recognizing the ego self or subjectivity as distinct and cut off from the rest mm. of the world, mm. um, which is of course a, a mode of understanding or inquiry that's favored by much scientific thinking, you can mm. say that. And then there's another, metaphy another metaphysical approach where our experience is somehow more fundamental and more connected 
in a way that's sort of a part to whole kind of experience, mm. you know, and to feel the intuitive pull of this is often experienced in psychedelic experience, but can be experienced in other peak moments. And I believe you can recognize mm. in ordinary moments of your life as well, but it is quite a shift from how many of us are raised these days. Um, have there been times, I suppose, where you have, presumably there have been times when your ordinary way of relating to yourself has been dissolved mm. or has been changed. Absolutely, absolutely. Can you, can you, what were those times or what was one yeah. of those times? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when Blake talks about, you know, seeing the world in a grain of sand in heaven in a, in a wild flower, you know, he's, he's talking about, you know, um, mystical state he's talking about higher consciousness he's talking about um you know he's 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 talking about you know be being um not just in you know in the ego state in the ordinary world and um you know to read someone else that sort of thought in the same way you know it was life-changing and I, i guess because you know i think most of us we do have these mystical experiences growing up when we're in our innocence and the world is a magical place. Um, he has a beautiful line here. He says, he who mocks the infant's faith shall be mocked in age and death. Perfect. You know, and, and like, um, like Jung, you know, the, the, the reference to the innocent child being, you know, the return to, you know, the lion state, um, that it, it is a... Um, you know that when we're young and we are still you know we we don't we're not cloaked in our experiences and how we think the world is where we we can see the world as it really is because we don't have a viewpoint about how it is you know we're just seeing things for the first time and in that state the world really is a magical place it's full of profound beauty in places we we don't normally see beauty and um you know and growing up i had some incredible experiences that were you know not of the ordinary world and um you know and and, and re- reading blake stuff you go oh wow other other people <laughs> have these experiences and i think the truth is you talk to most people a lot of people have them it, and it they it's just that uh we're not taught how to cultivate that state and how to use it to create powerfully they were not taught how to how to be in that state of our super consciousness and use it creatively the way that blake did the way that the renaissance artists did um and the truth is it's it's a state where people can access and they can use it to create profound art that's uh Mm. you have to be careful don't you because these peak experiences these creative experiences if you don't as you say have that appropriate nurtured structure or culture behind you or at least the knowledge of how to get there again and effectively it becomes what patterns of action what ways of being in the world do you um, live through in order to revisit these states Mm. and participate again in that cycle if you lose that or rather if you don't have that and attempt to reach too much with intellectual language to try and really depict precisely where it was well you you're destroying something you're you are destroying the fundamental way of being with that mode of perception if you do that too much 
you know and so it's quite it's quite a challenge to try and take some Absolutely. of this and bring it into conversation but I, I would say it's um the most simple form is like you know the um you know the innocent child in us when when we're young life's colorful and vibrant you know with every, the the things we experienced for the first time you know like your first kiss is the most amazing magical thing in in the world isn't it you know your hands are sweaty your imagination's running wild your 150th kiss you know it's still good your 150th first kiss it's still amazing but you know it's that level of magic that comes with not knowing and and being in innocence is profound and yes we have to mature and life is tough and you have to learn to survive and you become an adult and you become um you know you we become rampant in trying to get more experiences out of the world but ultimately to to, to learn how to access the your innocence as blake says the auguries of innocence and learn how to access your child inner child and to um and to have experiences like it is for the first time it's 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 powerful and it's profound and that's you know you you see the world in a grain of sand you know when you lose it you walk down a beach and it's just sand you know it's not worlds so where do you see yourself taking on that mentality as you move as you move forward mm. so you're the founder of living legacy and that's obviously something that's going to take a fair amount of time moving forwards but is there a is there a vision after this what is what is a successful incarnation of that vision in two five or ten years you choose whichever yeah, yeah. um yeah look a successful incarnation of it is um you know i i'd, I'd like to i want you know to see forests that are just completely designed for beauty you know that's that's the that's the vision that i want to have is where you know like just designed from the ground up just for just pure beauty you know you walk through you smell jasmine you're in wisteria tunnels you know you can smell the the lavender and the magnolia and the jasmine and there's there's color in you know there's color mm. in the flowers it's a beautiful immersive experience and and on top of the immersiveness you know you're also acknowledging that the person that you loved is a part of this beauty mm -hmm. um you know that's you know we've created that on a small scale and you know we're, we're coming up against an industry that wants to sell people you know very expensive coffins and very expensive graves and you know and we're telling people you know we're, we're offering something very new and it's a lot more affordable um so you know that my end result is just you know currently there's there's cemeteries and they're aging and they're full and in the future i want to see big beautiful forests mm. that that um connect people to the the magic of being alive and also our past you know which is important because mm. it's one of those strange things about human beings i seem to have this conversation a lot you hear it around a lot but it's it's important still to say which is just two generations ago we were fighting in world war ii three generations it's ago crazy, world it? war one and 
we are very young as a species and we exist in a small fraction of time evolutionary spe evolutionarily speaking and it's 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 really quite bizarre you know graham hancock actually and i haven't listened to graham hancock in quite a quite a long time uh, but he's you know he's an interesting speaker and he has his theories about ancient civilizations and what have you and um well i'll leave the empirical validity of that outside of things but one expression that he has which is quite nice is that we are a species with amnesia hmm. and he of course means to say that we forget what for him is likely to have been some sort of civilization that existed several thousand years before the egyptians or what have you that that was somehow involved with passing down knowledge after a after a diaspora after a you know meteoric impact or some sort of destruction or mass extinction event or what have you and and that's not precisely where i'm looking to go with this but the but the but the idea that we are a species with amnesia is surely true and we are always involved in creating as much as we reparticularize some of the wonderful things in life the the love the, the connection family mm. and, and, and all these things we also continually walk smack bang into the same sorts of problems mm. and i wonder how much it just 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 coming to me now i wonder how much of that might be alleviated and of course it's a multi-causal you know uh, phenomenon and problem and you'd want to take a, a much more holistic approach than just any one solution but to try and build an engagement with a place where our ancestors are now i'm not sure even the, the right word to use part of the environment in a way that is still replenishing you know i mean no one thinks of going to a graveyard to sit down and have a discussion there's sort of these places at least in my mind that are sort of kept away and they're sequestered and you know perhaps there's a utility in that in one sort of respect but it's not quite the case you'd imagine in medieval england the, the graveyards around the church and people are always going to the church and they're around they're around their history and what have you and look it's it's not like it's not like we came out of the med the medieval times in absolutely fantastic shape although of course we are here now and we've done many beautiful things and the enlightenment did happen and we have done a lot of wonderful things but nevertheless if we were able to build some sort of some sort of cultural practice within within a, an environment that had this connection to the past as well perhaps this could help engender an appreciation from where we've come and if that was mapped onto the right sorts of conversations and the right teaching and the right education it would give a more embodied sense of of what of what the possibilities are for the future and the cyclical nature of things but but also hopefully a bit of a, a, a bit of a concrete feeling into maybe some of the errors of our past as well no no ab absolutely it's um it's you know it there's a there's a, a heaviness to to this part of the conversation absolutely, because yeah. you know um and and you know that's the lead before the gold you know um mm. and you have to work you know you've got to work with the lead you can't deny the, the dark nature of reality mm. well that's actually a nice way to put it, Isn't it? we could spin we could spin <laughs> that met we could make that metaphor a, a lot heavier really couldn't we absolutely yeah absolutely and um the thing is with you know connecting people to the beauty of, of nature and feeling alive to connect people to feeling and to feeling alive 
is it's not just beautiful it's powerful because in doing that you're brought back into your center Mm. where you feel and you're brought back into your power and in that state you're also acutely aware you know of your own mortality Mm -hmm. and you have to face it Mm -hmm. and every civilization that's been around and every powerful civilization that's been around knows how important it is to know your own mortality and because it it brings you to action Mm -hmm. so you 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 don't waste your life you don't waste the time that you have Mm -hmm. you know it's profound that the pain in our lives comes from from being willing to love you know you love someone then you lose them and it causes pain and Mm -hmm. to actually not escape that pain and deny it and to 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 connect to it even though you know but to connect to it in a place where you're where you're open instead of closed and when you can feel mm. again you hold it in you don't you you bear it you hey. sort of you face it up you know there's that there's like there's a sort of there's a sort of experience of 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 crying with the ch- of crying with the tragedy and not against it in a way and it's and it's in that being with it and i i wish there, there would be more less uh, abstract ways really to to speak about this, but it's a fundamentally important idea. Viktor Frankl, I might have mentioned this in the podcast before, uh, but it's just such a profound idea. Viktor Frankl quotes Dostoevsky as saying something like, what I fear most of all is not to be worthy of my sufferings. And there's a tremendous profundity in that line, mm. right? Because there's something fundamental about the reality of the suffering we face and the mm. tragedy we face, but it's in that response to that that differentiates whether, well, it's whether you it's it's whether that it's whether that halts you in your tracks and makes you go against life, or whether you can move through it and affirm it again, right, and 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 maintain the belief in the wonder and the and the beauty of the possibility to experience at all, and so there is a beauty in suffering and that's the whole point you know that and the the word experience it's a journey through suffering and and when you when you open into it if you close into your journey through suffering you know uh then you have a closed and limited experience you know but if when when you can open into it um it's profoundly beautiful Mm. You know, the the loss of someone that you loved rather than being closed up and and then stuck in grief you can open up to the acute awareness of how lucky you are that you first of all you are alive mm. and that your life's limited and, and you've got to go for it and that the people that you love are alive and you've you got to cherish every second um and you know to, it's a slap in the face but it wakes you up mm. and you know, what just came to my mind then was, was again just going back to what the potential for living legacy is to, to what, what it can create and again how it can connect us to, well, fundamentally cycles of, of death and life that are, that, much, that are so much grander than any one individual, although not grander than the 
divine potential within an individual because of course it is precisely that divinity within the individual that makes possible the very grandeur of the whole cycle of life that's a very mystical thing to say but the point the point is that if uh okay i'll go i'll go at it this way we're talking about cycles here and being able to bear to bear suffering to again reaffirm a commitment to life the process of needing to do that well obviously never ends and one terrifying thought which i believe is true is that the stakes of that game only get higher as you get older and to the extent you mature that is and so while many of the challenges that once might have poleaxed you when you were younger or the difficulties that just might have had you absolutely writhing on the floor in difficulty, perhaps not, maybe that's a bit much, or, or, or maybe worse than that, feeling apathetic towards, towards life itself. Well, you can, perhaps you can deal with those ones now, but hey, the next mountain is going to have a deeper valley. Now, of course, the next mountain is going to be bigger. Now, it's not the case that we're always have to bounce from one extreme to another but there is a responsibility seems to me it has to be the case the more mature you are the older you are to take on a a more appreciative and uh, you do you face age you face your decomposition people around you die you know Mm. you don't have the ability that young people have to to go out and uh, at least move in the world you know, with the same sort of energy, and, and that's big, but, but if, and this is why it's so important to have a symbolic attachment to the world and to the, his, and to the symbolic history of our past and these sorts of structures, because they provide, they provide an example of something played out over s- such a longer period of time. It's a grander collective structure that you can situate your own part in, right? It's, it's something that's, the peaks and troughs have been established by by countless many individuals. And if you could take yourself out into a forest and a landscape that had been so built with so many, so many lives, you know, that had managed to create something so large, I, I do feel like this can be a, it really is a, a, a wonderful state to, to take yourself to, to face well, to face the challenges of life, you know, and it's not like, of course, forests don't already represent this kind of mm. regrowth and reconstitution. They have, of course, built on untold millions of dead creatures and other life forms and, and what have you. And, and, you know, and we, we might want to be metaphysical about things and white headian about things, panpsychist about things and say, well, actually, well, someone might think that all matter is in fact organic and that there's a sentience in everything and everything is undergoing these cycles of... Uh, of dissolution and reconstitution and merging with other things and there is the world of wonder around you always mm. to participate in but at, as human beings as as what we are with the culture we do we have a need and I, and, it, and it's a, and it's a perfectly reasonable one i think to try and participate in the environments that, well, that sustain us i'd say as as a human we have free will and choice and those choices define us every single choice that you make they, they they really do define who you were in the world, you know, and, and uh, when you look at 
the nature of reality, even though we, we only live for a period of time, everything that you do, once you've done it, it's, it's, it's happened. The nature is that it's happened forever. It doesn't, you can't unexist anything, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you bake a pie, sure, it might dissolve and vanish and never see it again, but it happened. Mm-hmm. You can't, it can't unhappen. So there is a, an infinite kind of like immortal nature in all of our choices and actions. Mm. And that's what legacy is about, you know, mm. like the the way that you touch the world, whether whether it's with your heart and how you touched people's lives, and whether you told jokes and brought joy to people's lives, or you planted gardens and or you painted and you wrote books, or you created families, or you painted a fence. That's that's the way that you touched the world that made it different after your from mm-hmm. your touching. Mm-hmm. You know, that's. That's what that's what it's you know that's this part of you that that does change the world and it to me being a human in, uh, is a well being a conscious human is about having choices mm-hmm. and and seeing how you choose and how it defines you um, you know and I guess when you look at that Blake reference about you know whether you're you're owned by a system or who yeah, you're not yeah, absolutely if you're choosing from your own place of creation then you're creating powerfully. But if, if you're just choosing based on what, how you've been programmed, you're not actually creating and you're not touch, changing the world in how you touched it. You're yeah. not an artist in any way. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's slightly off topic for, to, to the question, but um, I, I guess when you, when you look at death and, and how we live, here's, here's the reality of it. The average city in the world has a cemetery footprint twice the size of its CBD. Whoa. So that we're literally burying the planet with graves mm. and we can't afford to do that. You know, we've got species extinction is higher than it's ever been before. So, you know, what, what, we're in a situation where we've, we've got more cemeteries than cities. We're burying the planet with graves. We've got a growing population. We've run out of place for people to put in these graves that are now full. And we're chopping down forests at an alarming rate. It's... You know, if you were to if you were to believe that we weren't conscious and we didn't have a choice, then you'd feel helpless. You know, and you'd say we're fucked. Mm. <laughs> but you know, I I do believe that we are powerful race and that we are conscious and we do have choice. It only takes what one percent of the world choosing to become a leg- legacy forest for a quarter of the price of chopping down a tree to create a grave. And the collective impacts the same as reforesting the Amazon. So you know that's it's doesn't it doesn't take a small amount of the population becoming conscious, making powerful choices to change the world. We are already changing the world. We've done it. You know, absolutely. Anthropomorphism is like showing that you know we are powerful. We've changed the world in absolutely. in a hundred years. Absolutely. And if that's what we can do when we're asleep and unconscious, well, what's going to happen when we wake up? The irony is that. It usually takes pain to wake people up. You know, you, you want to right. wake up from a nightmare. It's, it's going to happen when, <laughs> when, right. when the bad thing happens. You're going to right. wake up covered in sweat. Right. So, well, one thing we do know is that the pain will come. So, uh, there's a good chance that that people will be able to wake up. But you know, there's um, there's two things that I want to try and tie together here because. Certain listeners will, I'm sure, have a difficulty 
with a few things. One is that there's a growing, well, it's been growing for a long time, for a few hundred years, I suppose. Um, and it's linked to the developments and predictive success of empirical science and the capacity of physics and abstraction to represent the machinations of the world at a very small level in such an and yet in such an expansive way that can get us to the moon and back and can hammer sports cars into space these sorts of things and that is the belief that many people have that we live in a world that is entirely determined it's it's a hard determin determinism where there is no free will to speak of mm. but the moralists among these people still understand that human beings need to believe as though it's we have a choice that there's a useful fiction if you like to our not thinking we have a choice and uh, i ultimately can't uh, can't countenance these views i am on your side of the coin when it comes to these sorts of things i do believe we have choice i don't believe it's a radically un untrammeled choice you know it's it's not it's not some entirely libertarian free will you know such a thing is actually incomprehensible i think it's incoherent you know there's only there's only choice when there are certain boundaries and an initial condition um drawn up or in fact perhaps more accurately more accurately um filtered by an organism and its relation to the environment that enables what is effectively an infinite set of possible actions, but nevertheless ultimately bounded, um, because we're not in some random place of static, right? There, there is a. But you know, and and so. The reason I think that we can make sense of this idea of free will, which ultimately becomes, on the view I'm talking about here, a compatibilist notion, which is to say that there is much of the world that is determined and. Uh, at the point of action, one might say that, well, th all the ducks in the row were lined up so that the next thing occurred. But I believe we have this, uh, well, I think there's good reason actually to think, and we can't go into the full, the full details of why, but I think there's good reason to, 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 f to feel strong in the um, idea that as human beings and perhaps as instantiations of complex sentience that we relate to the world we relate to a domain of potential in a in a place of intention that occurs in an important sense prior to a given action and that it's in that it's touching that imaginative potential that we are able to create a a, a, a branching and a possibility in the world but but that part of that creation actually is is almost always i think perhaps and i'm not sure about this but i think it perhaps needs to be conceived as a um as a as a as an unpacking of the self in a sense it's again involved in this circular motion it's going back to that place of of in a, i know you want to yeah no in. no no you you you, you said that the things that just like just spoke to me because you know when we talk about 
things that are conceived in the world. Yeah, when we talk about things that are conceived in the world, we conceive the world, you know, from our own conception, you know. And when we talk about conception, we're conceived from the womb. You know, we're conceived from the womb, we're born into the world, you know, with our woes. We try to get worth from the world, <laughs> you know, and, you know, we're, we're wounded in, in how we go about trying to get our worth from the world. And there's just this relationship between conception and the womb and, and how we conceive in the world. And when you talk about, you know, like a lot of the time, you know, people's people's view on the world, it's not how the world is, it's their viewpoint, isn't it? You know, and the people, you see some people who say, oh, the world's a terrible place. You know, you see other people say, oh, the world's a beautiful place, you know, mm-hmm. and other people, oh, the world's there to rip you off. The world's a place of adventure, you know, yeah, yeah. and the world is, isn't how it is. The world is, you know, how you see it is. And the, th- the thing that saddens me is I, I, I see people sometimes and I see their divinity and, and I see their souls and I see how beautiful they are. Really, um, and it hurts because they're not in possession of their own souls, mm. and that they're they're, tr- they're trying to get their souls from their world. They're trying to get an experience from the world, and they're trying so hard to get it. Not you know, not in relationship to that that they are divine and they are the experiencer and the experienced and it's painful i see these i see so many beautiful souls that don't know how beautiful they are they're trying to get their beauty from the world and it 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 does sadden me because there's uh there's there's divinity in 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 people and that divinity that's inside them opens them up to the divinity of the world and to see so many people not in possession of their souls, to not be in possession of themselves, you see them act, acting out, trying to get possessions. They think those possessions are going to make them happy. They think they're going to bring them joy, and they're not. They're, they're not in possession of their own souls. And how they go about trying to get things from the world, it, it, it genuinely saddens me. It's no, it is. It is. I understand. It's. Um difficult it's difficult i um there was a line here from william blake and it does relate to this idea but requires quite a bit of unpacking and it's one of those lines that takes us into um the necessity of speaking from a jungian perspective to try and understand it um and it might at first glance aspects of it might conflict with some of the things we've talking about but I do believe it is at core uh, holds hands with what we've been speaking about. And the line is to be in a passion you good may do, but no good if a passion is in you. Now, so one thing to realize here is that or perhaps a, a way to get into it would be to talk about 
possession from a Jungian perspective. And that what we are talking about fundamentally is the source of meaning and uh, the possibility for, yeah, the, the, the possibility for a, a meaningful connection to to your own experience and and your worth and uh, and uh, various authentic emotions they stem from on a Jungian conception uh, unconscious contents archetypes of the collective unconscious and you might understand these as passions to a degree and that if you are taken by one if it has you so to speak then an important integration between your conscious self and what are the tectonic plates that ultimately inform and move what fractures out on the surface well there's no if you're not aware of that you can be led is led into some led into some very dark places where your effect on the world is one you almost by definition cannot be aware of and uh well this is not such a good thing and it does speak to a a lack uh well a manifestation of of not having an appropriate integration of various unconscious elements into the conscious life and patterns of action does line up quite nicely with the idea of someone reaching out trying to grasp onto things to try and find meaning out there without recognizing that there are these uh yeah there are these uh various gods within that that have been that are primed for that are primed to to take place to take a place and to take a well integrated and righteous place in your life and if they don't get that then there's at once a sort of oscillation between a strange feeling of 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 emptiness but then an overcompensation so you want to fill the emptiness by grasping at things that don't quite have the appropriate relation back to what is needed within and uh, well it's the same thing overcompensating to to grasp into them now that was a very uh very big tangential line I took to try no, and relate that quote to what you're saying. You're, sp- you're spot on. You're spot on. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know, um, one thing that might be worth doing is just tying, tying, um, tying up that discussion of, uh, of free will and determinism there. And um, well, I do think what we are speaking about here is a a compatibilist sort of view because there are these parts of our nature that have been developed in accord with nature uh, and that because we participate in a cycle with nature that we are connected in that fundamental way we are necessarily um, 
determined to act within that structure. The question is, to what degree can you become aware of how it is you are impacting that mm. collective? And so the choice and the, the freedom is something like, it's not only an inner look because uh, very deep and perhaps alchemical idea, I'm, I'm not exactly sure about that, is that our external experience is actually, of course, continuous with our internal experience. And so that an exploration out into the world is importantly, very much analogous to an inner exploration, but that the unpacking and the uh, uh, awakening to, as I said, how you, how your potential is meeting the world just and and the formulation and the imagination of how to manifest that mm. just is the freedom we're talking about and if you look at that only from an abstract perspective at the time of immediate actions and it's sort of like a fetish for the present moment actually and this way of thinking where you line up everything that came before and you can say, hey, these are all the causes that led to it at the end of a completed physics or something like that. And there are other problems. We might come to doubt the ultimate explanatory value of of a completed physics, depending on what physics identifies ultimately as the fundamental constituents of reality. But that if what occurs in the present moment is the only level of analysis if, if the past and present are the only levels of analysis where where action is said to take place then one then one doesn't have then one has missed this reality of our imaginative potential and how we hold and how we can touch the future in that way mm-hmm so it's 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 a sort of and because it's abstracted away from what it is to experience this creativity and to imagine in the world well it's just entirely missing it's entirely missing the picture and there are other philosophical reasons we might talk about as well so i just wanted to tie that up and then also to link it to one other thing you'll do one at a time pardon one at a time we'll do we'll just do that one and then the next one yeah i've got oh, one yeah. more one more thing just to tie yeah. it because it will tie us back into the living legacy as well and that's we also see in the world at the moment the people who drive technology forward are often it seems the sorts of people who are becoming infatuated with the desire to extend life perhaps into infinity or what have you into mm. infinity but you know to a massive length of time and so there's this denial, in a sense, the refusal to accept our mortality. And that's, that's, that's interesting to see how that's going to play out. It's going to have obviously massive social implications if life is managed to be extended in a, in a great way. But I just wondered what your thoughts are on the prospect of life extension and whether or not you see any, any sort of philosophical danger in what might motivate someone to pursue that well, I, th I think it's a reality i think this this year a surgeon's gonna 
do a head-to-head transplant. They're going to give it a crack. <laughs> going to give it a crack, and he's he's done it on mice. So you know, I, I understand that he's successfully done it on animals, and it, when they, if and when they find a way to do it, you could have your head transplanted from machine to, to you know from body to body to body, and you 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 could stay alive indefinitely. But in theory, you know, in in our lifetimes, it's a possibility. Um, I think that's pretty amazing, isn't it? We would be the first first generation to to um, to potentially live forever. Mm. It's profound. Well, I mean, uh, there's probably I think there's a, a number of different people. There's a scientist called Aubrey de Grey. I've heard him speak about it quite a bit. Either very long hair or a very long beard. I can't remember. It might be the beard. Um, you know, and there's a few different things people are working on, and of course. Uh, you know, some people are a fan of the idea, which I don't think can be coherently formulated, um, which is the uploading your consciousness into a machine or something mm. like that and leaving the body behind or what have you and extending life that way. And, you know, I'm sure there's various biological solutions people are coming up with uh, in a world where you have to bloody have someone's headless body to put yourself onto. <laughs> you, you know, what <laughs> Certainly I, not a solution uh, for everyone, is it? <laughs> what, what I just think is amazing is that people think that that's your consciousness and it's just like it's just it's profound like so many people that are that are doing that do spiritual stuff they're doing it from the perspective that we're not spiritual beings and that and that we that we're trying to become spiritual and it's absurd we're like we are spiritual beings we don't need to try to be them or try to get there we are you know we like see carol lewis said you know you don't you you're a soul with a body you know you're not a a body trying to get a soul you are a soul with a body and um you don't have to do anything to to have a soul you have it but when people say oh you know upload your consciousness you know from your brain to the thing it's not your consciousness it's not your consciousness you know your 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 conscious self is you know more than your body it's outside of yourself you know that's plato's allegory you know, the, the guys are in the cave and there's a fire in the cave and they see their shadows on the wall and they think the shadow is who they are. And one of them turns around and he thinks he's enlightened because he sees the fire and he thinks he's the fire. Mm. <laughs> you know, he, says, he says, everyone, you're not the shadow, you're the fire. We're not the fire either. We're the light outside the cave, you know. Um, that's, <laughs> that's... There's a enormous you know difference in 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 that awareness you know your consciousness isn't this this struggle to identify with the observe and the observer it's it's this awareness outside of it all and that's that's your your super conscious your higher consciousness is the light outside the cave and you know blake and the renaissance artists they created divinity because they had a strong connection to that consciousness and they created through it and from it and they brought it into the world and it still acknowledges the most profound art of today. Um, so that's my thoughts on, <laughs> you know, you could live for a fucking thousand years and not have a relationship to your consciousness and be completely disconnected from the divine mm. in you and the world. A person that's dead inside sees the world as dead a person that's wounded inside sees the world that's wound as wounded 
a person that's alive inside sees the world full of life mm. and there's <laughs> this um there's this important there's a necessary relationship of course between the woundedness as you mean it and the possibility to feel alive there was a I said at the beginning that there was one uh, insight, a few insights you crystallized for me, and it was the first time we spoke, and you, I believe you used the term uh, fracturing, and it was too, might have been, it might have been fracturing, it might have been shattered, it might have chattering, it might have been something like that, but it was to talk about the idea that um, something like if you were to conceive of a perfect whole that in such a such a such a state such a conception well it's clearly not what we see in the world now we see things that are splintered into many different parts and we have various different perspectives on things but and this wasn't one of the things you said just to not put words in your mouth but there's something about the idea of a, of a of a of a full and complete perfection that lends itself to being something static and fixed because there's no differentiation in it and it's actually the the fracturing of what was static and perfect and whole into a reality that admits different perspectives or, or differentiation but also therefore necessarily a sort of woundedness mm. because what has been shattered was once whole and perfect and can never attain again the state it once had oh yeah yeah and so that. and so what then becomes on a view of thinking that i've explored since an important perhaps uh and uh this was the mirror metaphor yeah perhaps yeah why yeah. don't you why don't you why yeah, don't you, yeah, do you yeah. want to take I just, yeah i remember what you're talking about yeah well there's and so so one one way to explore this idea further is then to consider the best we can aim at then actually for life and given that life maintains to the extent it's moving and differentiated to maintain that is not to attempt to instantiate some final fixed version of perfection because such a thing is actually to be against the very conditions that enabled life. So what becomes important is to find some, some individual but collective way to harmonize around the image of a way of being that can continue that very process of harmonizing around an image and a way to be in life. So it's becomes what's appropriate in order to continue the cycle. Um, and you know, this is a very, it's a very interesting idea. This, uh, this, uh, the, the necessary tragedy and suffering and woundedness we might face as stemming from the finitude that we necessarily that is necessarily admitted into life once 
what was static and indifferentiated but whole and perfect is no more and it was just uh i remember speaking to you mm. and speaking about that and it did given what i was thinking about at the time and you know a number of years of exploration and since it was uh it will always be an iconic iconic conversation for me so i just wanted to tell mm. you that because something it's not it's one of the things no, i appreciate you. yeah it's um well and, and it's, it's an example of the the view on the world and your worldview you know um and the metaphor we had was was um beautiful perfect mirror if my if my memory serves me correctly and um and that mirror being shattered to a thousand pieces mm-hmm. and the fixer goes about the task of getting all those pieces of the mirror and putting them back perfectly together making making it one again making it you know unifying it all and despite how 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 good he is and how how hard he tries you know like Humpty Dumpty (laughs) he could never put all the pieces back together again and um Oh, it's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Just at how those nursery rhymes. Yeah, isn't it? Is it? It's unbelievable. If only I had. If only maybe it was Humpty yeah. Dumpty, not and not Warren Roberts yeah. that first put this idea in my mind. Holy <laughs> Jesus! And um, and you know, there's there, there's a truth in it that you know, like we are, you know, individual shards of a mirror broken off from perfection broken off from unity broken off from this experience of oneness and in this broken offness we have an experience of separateness you know we call, we call our ego or our individual experience and um, we are inherently connected to the whole and the the oneness and or as you know Jung calls it, or did his collective unconscious mm-hmm. and you know there, there's there's a bit where the fixer realizes that you can't put all the pieces back together again. You just can't. It, it, it's always going to be a fractured mirror. It's happened, you know, mm-hmm. because to, to have an individual experience, you have to be fractured. And that's just the nature of reality. It was one and now it's lots of ones. Mm-hmm. And when he accepts how it is, you know, rather than trying to fix it, um, he can then move to a state of play and say, well, maybe I'm going to create an elephant mosaic out of the pieces of the mirror. Maybe I'm going to create a giant penis symbol from, from the mirror. <laughs> maybe I'm going to create some art that represents my, you know, my heart. Maybe I'm, going to, I'm just going to create for this because I can, because I now have a thousand pieces <laughs> rather than one. Mm-hmm. And it's a radical shift in... Um, trying to get back to how things were and denying and struggling with your worldview to accepting how things are and, and accepting that you're broken and you're fractured and that you are separate from what what your divinity that you once were, but you're now a creator and now you're in a state of play. And an, an alchemist is someone that turns makes the volatile fixed and a fixed volatile. And you'll be very careful in the role of fixing. Oh, yeah. Well, and making things volatile, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're conscious, you know, the, the fixer can get stuck in a state that the, the world is broken or the mirror is broken and he's got to make it perfect again. Mm. And if he stays in that state, he's going to stay 
wounded in relation to what he's trying to fix. And he's always going to be the fixer, trying to fix something that's broken. You know, in this day and age, he'd be a healer, trying to, trying to, trying to fix things, trying to heal things, trying to make it better. And the problem is not acknowledging that he's making it fixed. Now, an alchemist would make that volatile. They'd change the state of what it is. And by changing the state, he can move to a state of play. And by starting to play with the pieces, he's not a fixer. He's now a state of play. He's a creator. Mm. And so there is a relationship between the creator and the created. And that state allows him to move from being, you know, the fixer to the <laughs> to the creator, the going from volatile to fixed and fixed to volatile. And um, from going from being wounded to being, you know, to being a creator, mm. from being on the cross to being, <laughs> you know, being resurrected. Yeah. Yeah, that was really beautifully put, man. Um, there's also something that, you know, I am conscious of, I am conscious of when I have these conversations and particularly with, uh, with, uh, with chaps like yourself who are heavily towards the creative end of the distribution, right? And who enjoy the, the creative playing around with metaphors and are also trying to communicate what is ultimately uncapturable, finally, in a fixed language, of course, which is this experiential capacity and that plays out over many different durations over the course of our lives, in moments, in all these different things that that experiential uh, plays out in many durations, that experiential creativity. And I, and you know, it's, and I love, I love having those conversations and I think they are required in this world. There is of course another side to the coin when it comes to what I'm interested in and what is necessary. And as we touch on all the time and, and, um, there's also, of course, an immense utility to fixing things and keeping them in place, right? Uh, and an analogy that just might comes to be, I'm going to reach mm. right to a metaphor to talk about it, but, mm. but mm. an analogy might be, okay, you actually might understand a fixation as actually a once previously, that was once something that was previously created, right? And maybe that thing was created out of necessity to get over a river it became mm. a bridge the bridge mm. was fixed you moved over it now the journey continues and that's important and that's good importantly to build the bridge or to perhaps make that bridge strong so that other people could get over it you had to tend to the bridge and make it the best bridge it could be and that there's all these various different ways to build bridges some of them work and some of them don't and through analyzing what that process is you learn how to do it and, and that's all good and it's necessary and important and um, and I just, I suppose I just want to. No, I, I got. I got yeah, you. I, I, got I know you. you're you're totally with me. Yeah. It's a, there's a challenge. It's a challenge I have because I'm always driven to. What I find most compelling of all is to attempt to express, I suppose, some of the most profound ideas I can. I suppose they're the ideas that are always that are always gripping me out of necessity because they're what ultimately provide the, well, in some sense, what we've spoken about here is our attempt to come to terms with mortality, mm. 
tragedy, but also the potential and wonder of things. And to talk about that in a way that, because there's this other part of me that that uh, enjoys speaking to the particularly scientific-minded people as well, and I have a history in, um, in education in analytic philosophy of mind, you know, and I understand how it is that from a technical, scientific, and rigorous philosophical perspective, a metaphysical view of the world far different to the one that I believe our conversation must ultimately grounded on how they exist. And it's such a challenge to speak to the individuals who may be in the pull of that way of thinking. And they wouldn't even like me saying it's a pull. They would say, no, no I'm some rational mind and I understand the way things are because well, I at least understand the most likely way things to be because of... Because, because they're fixed. They're not volatile, they're well, fixed. Well, ab absolutely. That's, what, that's what you're saying. This is the... Did I, have we spoken about Darwin yet? Uh, yeah, I think, I think you did mention him in the last conversation aspect of it. I'm you sure know. you have. Please. Well, when he started his journey, you know, he described nature as a vast harmonic rhythm. A vast harmonic rhythm. Yeah, and he, he knew that, that that sense of aliveness was alive in him and alive in the world and it motivated him to get on a boat and explore the world in all of its wonders yeah. he then analyzed the world and said yeah. this is how it is this is how it is this is this is this this is this he defined it all made it fixed made the volatile fixed yeah when he returned back from that trip you know he couldn't the sight of a peacock's feather made him sick mm. He couldn't leave his house for years. Mm. The rest of his life was, was in ruins. He, he, was, he became a sick human being. He analyzed it to death. He made it fixed. Uh, and it, it, it's not that, you know, defining things and making them fixed and, 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 and science is bad or wrong. It's, it's just that it takes the magic out of the experience and doesn't acknowledge that you made it fixed and that it's your viewpoint forgets its roots yeah and it is a powerful lesson in that like um yeah you, you know like it, we, we, when you talk about that that analytical perspective and it's to have that that reference you know <laughs> the exactly. charles darwin this guy that defined so many things it's very powerful um exactly and it's you know it is necessary for a communicative framework that many people can participate in um but it's one that needs to be open to the right sort of adaptation and transformation. So it's, it's again, it's finding the appropriate style of communication or discourse that enables the fixing and the volatility and the creation to play with each other. You yeah, mean, that's the thing, like to not acknowledge that you made it fixed and that you made it volatile, you're still stuck in the cave. You know, you're still stuck at pointing at the fire, pointing at the shadow and the wall going oh look the shadow is what it is and you're like yes this shadow is making a happy signal you know what i mean yes you're accurate you've analyzed the shadow but you have no <laughs> relationship to the fact that you're the creator of it and that you're not the shadow you yeah. know it's, well, it's um, directly denied i mean so on a on what is a a very well adopted view in analytic philosophy of mind by most naturalists um, in fact it might fall out of naturalism 
But of course, using the term naturalism is not so simple because like many philosophical terms, it refers to a broad variety of positions and people take different places within it. But the idea that is in such contrast to what we're speaking about here is that consciousness and in particular the consciousness of human beings is just a contingent which is to say not necessary feature of the world that it evolved out of things that were wholly non-conscious that were not motivated by the sorts of inherent uh, life-willing possibility that we've been speaking about and that there was a sort of emergence of a kind that I think is radical but some might argue is entirely comprehensible even though we can't comprehend it just yet but that in principle the scientific method will be able to tell us how that somehow it just happened that our consciousness developed but that it's not necessary or connected in in any uh, well in a necessary way and so that what we are, and, and that a concomitant of this view is that what we do when we theorize and we abstract is that we actually develop a potential frameworks for, for thinking and conceptualizing that necessarily attempt to remove the subject, which is just contingent mm-hmm. and, not, and not grounded in any fundamental truth about the world anyway, and try to remove that from the equation, or at least as much as possible, so that then you get left with the abstractions that reveal some fundamental way things are from which then you go about explaining the very point of departure that you tried to ignore at the beginning or the subjectivity. So Whitehead calls something similar to this a fallacy of misplaced concreteness, that abstracting away from experience is that it's a mistake to make those abstractions the fundamental grounds and point of inquiry into what's real. It's just such a limited way of being. You know, you you can define things and then it's definitive, right? And you say, this, this is how this is. You know, this is what it is. And, you know, well done, you're right. You defined it. It's it's green, it's blue, it's five, it's ten. It is, it is how you've perceived and you've defined it. But the your, your soul, so to speak, we'll use the word soul for now, mm. but your soul doesn't talk in the language of literal mm-hmm. your soul talks in the language of metaphors mm-hmm. and to actually to experience you know to have an experience of your soul and to experience you know to see the world in the grain of sand you can't be in that fixedness of definite mm. and definitive mm. you know you have to you have to allow yourself to see through the eyes of your soul which is metaphorical, which isn't definite, it's infinite. It's It's touching that. It's not limited, it's limitless. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's not that the definite is is wrong or it's bad, it's just that it's separate from your soul. Yes, it's separate from this high level of consciousness that that is connected to everything. Mm. Um, and that, that's where the mystical world lies. Yeah. Do you remember the, um, in our last conversation, uh, I spoke to you about the analogy of the water wheel as mm. the analogy I came up with or pulled from somewhere, I'm sure. 
to try to help conceptualize the relationship between analyzing the world and the mystical way of viewing the world. Mm. Um, and, uh, well, I suppose I'll just give a little, a little recount of it. If you imagine a water wheel that's embedded in a stream and the stream is moving quickly and pushing the water wheel along, it's got buckets or casks or what have you that, that uh, fill themselves of the water and that turns the wheel and the casks get upraised and they empty themselves out when the cycle reaches its apex and then enabling the wheel to continue and then once more again into the water. There's a few important things to consider. First of all is that the entire image there, the water wheel and the stream, and in fact the many other streams created by the filtration of the water from the stream, mm. that is all one system, it's all one thing, um, or rather it's one process that, that cannot actually be separated from one and the other thing without altering something fundamental about the image here. But that there are two broad elements or process is happening here. One is what I refer to in my work as whole making, which is drawn from this notion of mysticism or this mystical way of thinking uh, or rather perceiving. And so that the moment where the casks are, in, are immersed in the water, you can think of this as the realm of the imagination, perhaps the unconscious. It's the source from where givens emerge fundamentally. Uh, and as the casks are brought up and re-emerge through the water then begins the cycle of part making and this is the analysis this is that sort of fixing that ultimately goes on now if the whole structure is actually healthy importantly things aren't entirely fixed because they are upturned and released and then again you go back into the water mm, mm, so this mm. cycle represents the appropriate relationship of part making and whole making that works for the mutual benefit necessarily so of the entire structure so we're not here to do away with analysis at all mm. but to embed it within an appropriate adaptive way of being now the fact is of human life is that when you break things apart, you tend to forget the putting back together aspect of it. Or, you know, when you're in the mode of destroying, there is part of your consciousness that has been suppressed or has fallen back into the unconscious, which might have been the mode of creating or something like this. So you have this tension between breaking things up and putting them back together. And it's our nature to forget one or the other or forget precisely mm. how we are doing things or to forget the importance of what it is in us that enables us to come up with givens. Mm -hmm. And you need givens to conduct any sort Absolutely. of analysis. Yeah. People will say, oh no, of course, science requires assumptions and, and axioms, and you know, we should just allow that. But, but, and, and, and of course, you, you must allow that. But, but those, very, those very assumptions and those givens must be taken into account in a final analysis of which is really ultimately a way of being um, that you want to speak mm. about as most real. And, and I think it's with this sort of language and um, that we can come to come closer to understanding the importance of both, both mysticism and analysis. And there are a number of metaphysical distinctions and things here that I've left unsaid that we must, that the view I believe must ultimately be built on. Um, you know, it is an endorsement of a sort of fundamental sentience 
at the root of at the root of uh, at the root of all things. It's also an endorsement of process philosophy that what is most fundamentally real is process and not fixed things. Mm. But that in order for the structure to continue, it has to engage in the process that makes fixations and properly try to recognize when and where they don't work according to what might have been the given or the vision or what have mm. you, mm. and then to release them and go again. So it's this process of building and rebuilding. And, um, you know, there are some, I, I do believe that these are important ideas that sit at the that sit at the metaphysical substrate of what it, of some of the things that are fracturing our current attitudes, our current collective attitudes toward the future. Mm. It's these parts of ourselves that can always come apart. And it's one of the central missions of, it's one of the central objectives of this project. And, and you know, what I want to achieve moving forwards is to have discussions about these sorts of ideas, link them to politics, link them to other things and to explore these rifts and to attempt to bring them into a kind of harmonious and creative, but also critical kind of discussion and place. So anyway, thank you for letting me no, take you through that. I would, I would say um, the infinite gives birth to the definite. And it, you know, it's, it's a beautiful part of it. And, it's, and it's, there's not a war between the infinite and the definite. It's, not, it's never saying analysis and definition is, is wrong. Um, the infinite gives birth to the definite and it allows us to have an individual experience from the whole you know with that shard of the mirror yeah and it allows us to you know and and that's amazing it's a it's a it's an absolutely beautiful gift um and death death doesn't die but life does and when the the ability to to sort of go in and and not be stuck in our definitions allows us to bring more life into life because when when we get stuck in defining things more and more and more we bring a death to a sense of life mm. and aliveness in the world mm. and it's not that definitions are wrong it's just that exactly like you said before there might be a time in our life where we create a definition and we live by that definition and it serves us. But there gets a point in our life when it no longer serves us. And even though we defined it and we created that definition and we've lived by it, um, as the creator, you know, if we want to bring more life into ourselves, we've, we have to be able to make the fix volatile and let go of that definition and redefine ourselves and redefine the world and create anew that's mm. that's a that's a powerful person that's a conscious creator mm. so um you know by definition that's that's, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> sounds, that sounds like a, you know a mystical divine ex human experience yeah well look that's beautiful man and i know our time is running short so what i want to do is just in closing before asking you one final question is link this back to really a wonderful point of departure for this sort of conversation and one that I'm glad that we can always use to refer back to the next times we speak. There's a lot we didn't talk about today. Um, some recent experiences in a, a very alien psychedelic world that I've had that I know you might be interested nice. in hearing about and we can come back to that conversation at another time. 
um, there's going to be some interesting developments in the next few months for me going across to Beyond Psychedelics and uh, presenting something there at a conference in Prague. And um, cool. coming back from that, I'm sure that it'll be an interesting um, journey and uh, experience. Lots of change for me at the moment anyway. And so I'll bring other things to that conversation. But it is a wonderful thing to progress launch from this conversation with the backing of uh, a discussion of living living legacy mm. and the, the beautiful the beautiful vision of creating and these are already being created but to continue to to nurture these uh these landscapes and these these worlds um and uh, uh, that will stand as a a monument and ode to the cyclical part we play in nature and life and uh, for the many reasons discussed earlier reasons this is a powerfully wonderful idea and it's so connected to everything we've spoken about since of course mm. as it and so just in closing then how can people learn more about living legacy, living legacy. where will you direct them yeah um if you go to living legacy yeah if you go to livinglegacytree.com uh you'll go to our website and you'll see more information about the science and the process and the product um you know you could a person can become a single tree or a tray of seedlings and uh, you can plant those trees or those seedlings at your home or in one of our dedicated legacy forests and you know in reference to that and what we just talked about it lets you transform your life you know your, your life can go on to create new life and that the way that you touch the world can change other lives one of our customers um she lost her, uh, he lost his daughter um his birth her birthday was in autumn he chose a wattle tree with a beautiful yellow flowers when he visits her tree on her birthday it's just full of flowers and it's beautiful and he said you know if he spent the rest of his life visiting her grave on her birthday he would be connecting to what he'd lost and now he visits her tree that's full of flowers and, and blossoming on a birthday he's connecting to what her life created enormously different um definition <laughs> you see not a he, we've changed the definition and he's changed his experience he takes the seedlings from that tree and he plants them all around his neighborhood there's yellow flowers all down his street there's yellow trees all down his street and how that girl has changed the world is represented it's got a physical manifestation that brings color to the world uh, so we're transforming lives that's what we're doing it's beautiful man and i will have links people can follow to that and uh, i look forward actually i'd love to talk to you about just plans to market this sort of thing and i could see it it's a it's something it's a it's a cultural revolution of sorts actually you know uh, what what this has both the potential for and what also uh in some to some degree well obviously it would benefit from there's a requirement for a sort of word of mouth and a discussion i think needs to be created ar around the whole essence of what's mm. happening here and then to see this as a solution to navigating that rather than just a it's not just a service no. it's not a product you know what i mean no, it's, it's, it's not a product that. or a service it's different so look and, and it's important because you know like nature the earth it's a living organism it's not just a place where we dump rubbish it's not just a place where we dump things we don't want to see and 
if we scatter untreated ashes, the the impact it causes harm to the earth. The salt and the pH causes a negative impact on ecosystems. You know, you can't just bury the ashes without harming the soil biology. You put it in a biodegradable urn. Well, what happens? The urn biodegrades, and the ashes are still there. They're still full of salt. They still harm the, the soil biology. So there's you know there's fake internet products that use biodegradable urns. There's people just scattering them in fragile ecosystems, and they come back, and the ecosystem that was beautiful <laughs> is fucked. And there's you know that's it's there is a way of of doing things that creates life and connection and regeneration by working with the living biology in the soil and there's ways of doing it that that creates destruction um and it's yeah life's, Isn't that life, just the story? life's on a razor's edge man the whole thing is just about choices yeah i believe i believe you i agree yeah. with you and the, the, every single choice we make uh it echoes through eternity you know every choice we make can't be undone that's it's the nature of reality well perhaps we'll leave it there cool. thank you very much thank you lovely to see you awesome thank you for listening everyone if you would like to support what I'm doing with this project and to be a part of the journey moving forward then then you can find the link to Patreon below and if not then uh, your attention is already um, quite a gift so thank you very much for that there's plenty of other ways to support what I'm doing here as well all the usual ones subscribe like share and all the rest of it it's quite important to figure out as soon as possible whether or not this project is of value to um, well to enough people so that it can sustain itself in the world it's certainly valuable to me and that's what I'll be pursuing for the foreseeable future so thank you for being here you know where to find it 